Welcome to Biology for Bastards, teaching biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. I'm really fucking excited about this one today. I love teaching this shit. I don't know why, but this is one of the my favorite little sections to teach. Um, I just fucking love it. So we're just going to get in. We're talking, we're this season, we're going through the AP Biology curriculum. And we're up to chapter 16 on the molecular basis of inheritance. So DNA. That's what we're talking about. Um, and we're going to start with a whole bunch of experiments that led to the, you know, the discovery that DNA was the shit. So first up, we have the work of one Frederick Griffith. I'm sure you all know his name. You're forever going to remember him as the mouse fucker. That came out bad. He did not fuck mice. He is the fucker who did a lot of experiments on mice. Glad I could make that clarification. Um, He was studying two strains of this bacterium. One strain would make you sick. It was the S strain. It would give you pneumonia and you die. The other one was the R strain and it was totally harmless. You could theoretically eat a spoonful and be totally fine. But what he did, um, he was doing some experiments on mice where he first injected some mice with the living S strain. Remember, the S strain's the the dangerous one. So no surprise when all those mice died. And so he had a bunch of dead mice on his hands. Then he injected a bunch of mice with the living R strain. And no surprise there, but they were totally fine because the R strain's harmless. Then he did what was called heat killing the S strain. So he basically cooked the S-strain until they were all dead. And after it cooled down, he injected mice with that. And again, no fucking surprise when those things were totally fine because the thing that would make him sick was dead. But the interesting interesting thing that happened was when he mixed the heat-killed S-strain and the live R-strain, both of which were totally harmless by themselves, he mixed them together and injected into a mouse. Dead fucking mouse dead just dead pneumonia filled lungs and with the crazy shit was when he cut open the lungs inside he found living s strain he was like what the fuck because you know zombies aren't real so it wasn't that it came back to life so he deduced that there must have been something, some unknown substance that was able to transform the living R strain to the S strain. So he called this process transformation because this stuff was transformed. Then we had this guy kind of following it up like 16 years later, Oswald Avery. And if you look up a picture of him, he looks like he's either a villain from a World War II movie or... Like the sweetest old grandfather with a pocket full of hard candy you'd ever see. Give you a quarter every time he sees you, tell you not to spend it all in one place. One or the other. He's either a Nazi or the sweet little grandfather. But he kind of took all this stuff one step further. And where Griffith said transformation is something that happens, um, the work of Avery showed that DNA was the transforming agent. He did it by digesting the heat killed S strain with a bunch of different enzymes, some that eliminated RNA, some that eliminated proteins or carbs or lipids or all this shit. 
and he was seeing which one would prevent transformation from happening. The only one that did it was when he dissolved the DNA. So that showed him DNA was a transforming agent. Simple as that. Now this brings us to the Hershey Chase experiment. Um, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase. Not Hershey as in the chocolate guy. That's a different Hershey. Don't know his first name. Probably not Alfred. But this experiment is so fucking beautiful. Oh my god. It's just so good. Because so many times in science experiments are just fucked. And you just want to like hang yourself or something. Not to make light of suicide. I shouldn't have said that. But you just... It is so depressing. You spend all this time doing an experiment and it fucking sucks and it just doesn't work and you just want to smash your head into a wall. Um, the Hershey and Chase experiment was going to work no matter what. Something was going to happen and they were going to get some result and that's why it's so beautiful. So they were working with a special type of virus called a bacteriophage and it's a virus that only infects bacteria. And the particular virus they were working with had a protein coat surrounding a DNA interior. So there were only two parts, proteins and DNAs. And at the time, in the early 50s, people were arguing about what the genetic information was, whether it was DNA or whether it was protein. So there were different, you know, teams. Team DNA, team protein, and all that shit. And... The Hershey Chase experiment was going to settle the argument. So what they did, they grew two separate batches of virus. One with radioactive um, sulfur. I want to say it's S35. And then the radioactive phosphorus they used, the label of the DNA, was P32. Um, I want to say those are the numbers. I might be mistaken there, but um, they were growing the radioactive protein by growing it in radio labeled sulfur because sulfur is all over the place in proteins there is no sulfur whatsoever in DNA and then kind of on the contrary they were able to radio label their DNA by growing it in radioactive phosphorus because there's a shit ton of phosphorus in DNA no phosphorus in protein um, and then the beauty of this experiment is after they had these radioactive or these half radioactive viruses they let nature do nature let them infect bacteria they threw them in a fucking blender just like a regular old blender to shake off the outsides of the viruses and then they spun it down and they looked for radioactivity and you know what they found? they found the radioactivity inside the bacterium in the radioactive DNA group so that showed them that DNA had to be the genetic material So, that's a pretty nifty experiment that I really thoroughly enjoy. There you go. Sorry. Little dogs being a shit barking, so. I was a slacker and did not shut the door to the closet where I record, so that's what I was doing. So, sorry if you heard any weird ass banging shit. So. It's a, you know, this is a low-budget podcast, if you haven't picked up on that. It's free music for the intro and outro. Shout out to Purple Planet Music. 
letting us use that. And it's me sitting in a closet recording. So, you get what you get. Unless you want to start funding me, sponsoring me, and giving me a lot of money so I can get a studio and get other people in and all this shit. But that's a different story. Back to the story of DNA. So, we are 1947. Erwin Shargaff. I think I have a typo in the PowerPoint if you follow along. I think it says Edwin. Uh, his name was Erwin. Edwin's a more real name, but this guy was Erwin. Erwin Shargaff. And he is famous for these rules um, that we now know to be super obvious because we learned biology in like middle school. But what Shargaff's rules say um, is the amount of adenine in a sample of, D of DNA is going to be equal to the amount of thymine and at the same time the amount of cytosine is going to equal the amount of guanine. Now he had no fucking clue why this happened. So we now know, because we know what the shape is and know what it looks like and everything. But he didn't. He had no clue whatsoever. So he just said A equals T, G equals C. Boom. There you go. This brings us to a story of Rosalind Franklin. She got screwed the fuck over by a bunch of dickheads. Um, history has her remembered as an x-ray crystallographer taking pictures of a bunch of shit with x-rays um this woman had to be smart as hell i've tried to understand how crystallography works and the math involved i have no fucking clue it's using some weird ass shapes i have never seen before in my life trying to symbolize shit i don't know but she worked with maurice wilkins in the 50s and after world war ii where she did a bunch of groundbreaking work on gas mask and everything saved a bunch of lives there she was working on dna and she w was taking better and better pictures every single time figuring out information and then one fateful night um wilkins showed this american james watson a picture of photograph 51 one of franklin's pieces and using that information watson and his partner francis crick were able to build a model of DNA and were the first humans to know the shape of DNA in the history of humanity. It's kind of a big fucking deal. The model is at the Science Museum in London. Highly suggest if you get there to go. The museum's free. The model's really fucking cool. Um, and it was just one of those things that as soon as they got the model, all these things fell into place. Um... The reason that Shargaff's rules applied, the reason A equal T and G equal C had to do with base pairing, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, but there was a proposed model of replication. It was just this beautiful model that came together in 1953. And what they had in it, they had a sugar phosphate backbone alternating a five carbon sugar deoxyribose with a phosphate group and pointing towards the middle were these rungs if you think of a ladder these rungs nitrogenous bases and th that is the adenine the guanine the thymine and the cytosine so when you look at these different bases your adenine and your guanine make up they are part of this group called purines 
and then your thymine and your cytosine are pyrimidines. I remember the difference between, or remember which one's which, because pyramids cut, and that's your cytosine, your uracil, which we'll get to when we talk about RNA, and your thymine. So pyramids, pointy, they cut, um, and then that means your adenine, your guanine, and your purines. So with base pairing, what you end up with is one purine with one pyrimidine. And because of the number of hydrogen bonds they each each base wants to form, that's how you end up with A pairing with T and G pairing with C. Because A and T form two hydrogen bonds, and then G and C form three hydrogen bonds. So that's why you can't have like A with C, because A wants to form two bonds while C wants to form three. So the only way it works for size and number of hydrogen bonds and all that shit is by pairing A with T and G with C. And like I just kind of hinted towards, it's hydrogen bonds that are holding the two strands together individually weak, but when you get enough together, it makes it pretty strong. And it's like this little molecular Velcro holding the shit together. Which brings us to replication, just about. Um, I guess we got a little organization. Um, so with our DNA, one strand runs what's known as five prime to three prime, and that has to do with the carbons in each nucleotide. They have they're numbered. So one is right side up, running five to three, and the other one is upside down, running in three to five. So we say that the two strands are anti-parallel to each other and that's the same or that's true for all forms of life this anti-parallel dna double-stranded helix doing its shit whether it's a prokaryote a little bacterium whether it's a eukaryote a big fancy thing um prokaryote eukaryote does not matter they're both double-stranded um now differences do happen once you go beyond that like prokaryotes they have a circular they have a single circular chromosome eukaryotes we have a shit ton of chromosomes like a fruit fly has eight and that's a really low number humans have 46 there's some plants and shit that have like thousands of chromosomes but ours are linear eukaryotes have linear chromosomes versus the circular prokaryotic ones ours are found in the nucleus, while in prokaryotes, it's in the cytoplasm. Um, what else? Let's see. In eukaryotes, we wrap our DNA around these proteins called histones, and it just helps condense it down and everything. Um, and yeah, now we're on to replication. So, when they first figured out the model of the DNA, they had an idea of how it was going to replicate. Um, but there's three different ideas on how it would actually do it. There was a conservative model, a semi-conservative model, and a dispersive model. So the conservative model said you'd have the original DNA molecule and you'd make an entire new molecule where both strands were completely new. Um, the semi-conservative said you'd have this double-stranded molecule and you'd split it up and you'd make a new strand for one side and a new strand for the other side. 
so that the two new molecules you get after replication are half old, half new. That's why it's semi-conservative. You're saving part of it. And then the dispersive model is just like this random mass, like this part is new, this part's old, just kind of scattered, peppered throughout the molecule. Now is the work of Messelson and Stahl, I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce their names, where you don't know any difference. So let's say it's Messelson and Stahl, where they grew it with some radioactive nitrogen. They grew some DNA, some bacteria, the radioactive nitrogen, and they let it replicate once and then replicate a second time and they separated everything out and they essentially prove, not essentially, they proved that it's a semi-conservative model that is how DNA replicates. So every time DNA replication occurs, you end up with two new molecules, each one consisting of an old strand and a brand new strand. So this brings us to how the fuck does that happen? Well, there's a whole bunch of enzymes involved. There's helicase, there's primase, there's a couple DNA polymerases, there's ligase, all this stuff. Um, just putting it in a nutshell. We have helicase that comes in first um, and unwinds DNA, creating some replication forks. And a replication fork is just where the DNA has been split open and you get this replication bubble where you're going to do all this shit. Okay. Um, then there's all this fancy ass shit um, that's going on with these replication bubbles leading to the next step where um, this primase puts down an RNA primer. It's just basically like a building block, something to start DNA polymerase 3. So DNA polymerase 3, it's the really good enzyme that does most of the work here. It's going to add complementary bases onto the leading strand where the new strand gets made in a five prime to three prime direction. Now it's called the leading strand because it can just be synthesized um, continuously, nonstop. Now the other strand is known as the lagging strand because it's backwards. So what has to happen is it's got to loop out and then come back around and essentially be replicated in reverse. And these little chunks of where it's looping out and coming back um, are called Okazaki fragments. So it grows in the three to five direction, which is backwards, and it does so by these Okazaki fragments. Um, after that, we have DNA polymerase one come in. Remember it was DNA polymerase three that was adding all the nucleotides to the growing strand. DNA polymerase one replaces the RNA primer with DNA and then we have DNA ligase um, coming in to kind of hook everything together. So we have helicase open, primase starts, polymerase, DNA polymerase three grows the molecule, DNA polymerase one replaces the RNA with DNA and ligase seals everything up. And we have all these different polymerases. There's more than just the one and the three that we mentioned, um, but they are proofreading as we're adding. They are fixing shit. Um, if there's damage, if there's mistakes, 
things are getting fixed, so it does a really good job where it makes... Oh, shit, I wish I could remember. Like, one in, like, a hundred million, or one in a million, like, mistakes. One mistake in every million bases or something like that. Or one in every ten million. It's really good. Um, so, it's pretty nifty. Until it gets to the very end. So we have these Okazaki fragments grow where they're looping out and coming back. When you get to the five prime end of the molecule, there's an issue where there's not enough room for it to loop out and then come all the way back for DNA polymerase to do its job. So what happens is your DNA gets a little shorter every time. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just wanted to say, follow us on Twitter at bio for bastards. Um, our intro and outro music is feeling good by purple planet music. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.